Why don't you turn and say hi to a couple people and then you can have a seat. We continue now in our study in Romans chapter 8, and we've really come to the conclusion of this section and really what is the ultimate payday. Romans 8 is where you need to turn often when you feel like things are against you and life is going to defeat you and you don't know if you can keep going on. Romans 8 here in this section that we will look at tonight is just drawing conclusions from everything that Paul has been teaching before. He's been teaching the gospel, the fact that salvation is a gift from God by faith. You can't earn it. He teaches all about the fact that this fits in with God's plan for us. And earlier in chapter 8, as we came to that great 28th verse, the realization that everything works together for good to those who love God and are called according to his service. All the glories of our inheritance, all the the fact that our suffering can't, at its worst, can't even compare to the glory that God has planned out for us in the future. And then in verse 31, we come to this incredible section. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? We are absolutely invincible as children of God. There isn't any enemy that we have to be overly concerned with or feel that in any way we might not make it. Because God's for us. And if he really is for us, who can be against us? He's going to go down and give a bunch of examples of those that you'd think might be against you. But it's all based on this question. If God is for us, who can be against us? And let that sink into your heart for just a moment. God is for you. And what else being against you could even matter when you know that God is for you? Now, if you're going, well, I don't know if God is for me or not, then go back and read these first eight chapters. Paul makes it really clear. No, God is on your side. No one has ever been for you the way that God is for you. No one has ever been doing for you what God has done for you, nor could anyone ever make promises that could compare to the promises that God has made for each of us. Simply on the basis of his grace, simply on the basis of what Jesus did for us on the cross. If it was any other basis, then your biggest enemy would be yourself. You'd be afraid, what if I mess it up? What if I do something that causes God to turn on me? And sad to say, a whole lot of people live their lives that way, scared to death that I am going to do something that causes God to turn on me. Then I'm going to feel all of his wrath and anger. If God is for us, who's against us? Well, if he's for you right now, how'd you get that way? Again, going back through this early part of the book of Romans, it's very clear. You got that way because he chose you. You got that way because Jesus died for you. All you did was put your faith in him, and that resulted in you becoming his, in you being adopted by him. And so he has made a very clear argument that it doesn't have to do with anything, any value that you have inherently or any response that you make. God did not make an investment in you that he hopes pays off. There are some people who look at it that way, like God goes ahead and throws a bit of venture capital your way, but he's going to be watching your stock price, 
And if it doesn't prove to be a good investment, he's going to yank it back away from you. I was reading one time a, a, uh, a very well-known um, author uh, who writes books for women, and uh, she's probably the most popular Christian author, and she made this statement, and it's the reason why uh, at Calvary we, we wouldn't sell her books, but she made the statement that God took a great chance on you when he had Jesus die for you. And she goes on to say the implication is, and by the way, this is something called openness theology, that God doesn't know how it's going to turn out, that he does what he can do and he hopes for the best. But that was what she was advocating for. And, and to her defense, she was trying to make you feel really good, like, hey, it's paid off. But the truth is, not at all. Remember, God's relationship with you, Paul makes it clear, started while we were yet sinners, back in chapter 5. But God showed his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So he didn't take a chance. He isn't betting on you and hoping for the best, but he's ready to tear the ticket up if it looks like you're not going to win the race. It's, you can't lose, and he is for you, and he will be for you until the end, until he sees you and you are like him and we see him face to face. And there's never a time, even when you are in the middle of your worst sins that you ever do, there is never a time when you should feel like, I think God's going to turn on me. I think there's something I can do that's going to make God change his mind about how he feels toward me. Where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. The truth is, God, see, God doesn't save you so that you'll stop sinning and then therefore he'll feel good about the way you're living. The only reason God cares about sin is that he knows what sin does to us. And we've got to get this into our heads that sin is not something that we should be wondering, I wonder how much of it we can do and still have God love us. Sin is not on a contingency basis with our love from God or our love for God. Yeah, Paul makes it clear, and we're going to see it as we move into the rest of the chapters. We're seeing it on Sundays, Sundays mornings in Ephesians as well that of course what God wants to do is to get us to sin less. But it's because he loves us, and he knows the consequences of, of those sins. But for us, one of the consequences of those sins is not that you're going to pay for your sins. Yeah, you will suffer natural consequences to your sins. But there isn't anything that you could do that will cause God to turn his back on you, that would exclude you from his love. And, and Paul is just so blessed by that. And I, and I think it's appropriate that a guy like Paul, who had changed so radically, and he was such an amazing example of a Christian, that you would think if anyone would ever be secure in his own righteousness, it would be Paul, because you could go, he wasn't perfect, but he was certainly better than anyone else we know. And yet Paul considered his own righteousness as dung. As good as he was, it meant nothing because it was just all about knowing Jesus. And so he doesn't say, boy, I feel really secure because I'm doing all the right things or I'm doing most of the right things or I've seen growth in myself. All of his security is based on the fact that God is for us that Jesus Christ loves us and, and died for us and that we've put our faith in him. And any time we start to add to that, we're really taking away. Because if God is for us, no one can be against us. And whatever they can take all the votes they want, if everyone in the world is against us, that's nothing, that's inconsequential. No matter who our enemies are, all you need to do is know who your friend is, and that's Jesus. And you know, people in your own family may turn on you, 
and that hurts, but God is for us. How much does that really matter? How much does it matter that God is for us, and how much does it matter that no one can be against us as a result of that? We really need to get our heads around that. And don't be afraid of that. Don't be afraid that you're just going to go off into gross sin as soon as you realize you're secure. You don't do that. It doesn't work that way. That would never happen, Paul said. Anyone who really knows God would never, you know, then go, oh, great, now I get to sin. I, I don't want to sin because I believe what God says. I know it's what's killing me. And, and so if he gives me the power by his spirit to conquer sin, that's great. But it's not about my relationship with him because that is not contingent on anything other than him being for me. And if he is for me, he says he is, then nothing else should threaten that. Verse 32, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? In other words, you were valuable enough to God that he sent his only son to die for you. God was willing to have his relationship with the son. And he had been the son from all of eternity. God didn't become a trinity, the Father, Son, and Spirit at the incarnation. Within God, there's one God, and he has, there are three persons within the Godhead. I can't prove it to you. I can't even explain it to you, but the Bible teaches it clearly, always has, always will. But that relationship was affected by his giving his son, because not only for the first time in not only all of history, but before history began, now one member of the Godhead wasn't there in heaven anymore. In fact, he gave up the use of his omnipresence. And not only that, he had to give up the use of his omnipotence, that ability to just do whatever came into his mind to do. He had to learn humility. He had to learn um, that sense of frustration that comes when we're limited. He also gave up his omniscience. There were a lot of things that he didn't know because of this choice. And not only for that 33 years, but even for the rest of eternity, Jesus is different than he was before the incarnation. He didn't just become a man for a while and then he jumped back into his God suit. He became a man and he will remain a man for all of eternity. That doesn't take away from the fact that he is completely God. The point is, by God giving his son, that was huge. That was a huge gift from God. That was a huge sacrifice for the Father, for the Spirit, and for the Son. And so Paul says, if he would do that for you, then do you think he would hold back anything else that you need? What is it? What possible thing that you need would he hold back if he's already given you this ultimate gift of his son and sent him to die for you. If you have someone who's a, a friend and they come to you and they say, you know, I really, God really laid this on my heart and I've just made a, come a, a, a pro, upon some windfall profits and and so I have a lot of money. So here, I'm, I'm going to give you $25,000. That'd be a pretty good day, huh? But then if you said, wow, thanks, and you took the 25000 cash, but you said, I'm parked out front and there's a parking meter. Could you loan me a quarter so I can put it? Don't you think the person who gave you $25,000 would be happy to give you a quarter? Well, Everything that God needs to do for us is nothing compared to what he has already done for us. 
And recognizing what he has done for us, we should realize he's not going to hold back if something's good for us. He's not going to, to in some way decide, look, I already gave you my life. That's enough. Quit trying to squeeze blood out of a turnip. You know, he's going to, when we ask, he's happy to give us whatever we need to, to protect us with whatever resources he has available to him because of the love that he clearly has for us. He'll give us all things. And then verse 33, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? That's a really important question because we are constantly putting charges against ourselves, condemning ourselves. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He started this chapter by saying, so any condemnation is a lie. Any accusation is one of two things. Either it's accusing us of something that we're guilty of, but that has been paid for, 2,000 years ago, or it's trying to make us feel bad about something, and it's not God who's doing that, because he, no one, he is defending us. Jesus, even as it says here earlier in the chapter, it talked about how the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. Now this beautiful truth that Jesus, too, is interceding for us. He is, according to Hebrews, at the right hand of the Father, where he forever lives to make intercession for us. So accuse away, condemn away. I don't care who wants to accuse me of anything. I have a defense attorney who's never lost a case, who's already paid for whatever the penalty would be of whatever it is anyone wants to point out to me. It's scary when you think about people condemning you or accusing you because you know we all do things that the world could say this is worth condemnation. But whatever we are condemned of, he has already forgiven us. So yeah, there could be consequences on this earth, but that shouldn't bother us. And that's why Paul says, hey, the sufferings in this life are nothing compared to the glory that's to come. Paul violated certain laws, and the legal system condemned him. And he happily went to prison for those violations, and prison became his ministry. A lot of downtime to write the New Testament, a lot of opportunities to share the gospel with his guards who sometimes were chained to him and they had to listen his attitude was, hey, condemn me of whatever you want. It's a win-win for me. You guys can feel good about it, but the truth is Jesus is defending me. He is interceding for me. And again, back to verse 28, everything that happens works together for good. There is no such thing as something bad happening to a Christian. Nothing bad happens to you. Only things that the devil comes and tells us are bad things to bum us out, to make us feel defeated, to rob us of that which God has done. No one can take us away from God's love, he's going to go on to say. And no one can bring a charge against those who God has chosen as his children. However... And the devil knows that. I'm sure that Satan is smart enough to realize that he cannot steal people out of the hand of God. But if he can make you think that you're defeated, it's almost as good in the short term. Because you end up creating a bunch of Christians who are forgiven, who don't realize it, who are free and blessed and wealthy beyond their wildest dreams, but they just can't accept it. 
And so it's much of the devil's interest, and that's why he is the accuser of the brethren. It's in his best interest to let us not recognize what we have in Jesus Christ. And I believe that any time we are being accused, when we are accusing ourselves or we're being accused by others, the question is, who will bring a charge against God's elect? On the one hand, no one can bring a valid charge. Therefore, anyone who is bringing a charge is bringing a lie. And who is the father of lies? Who's behind all that? It's Satan himself. I think I mentioned a while back to you the time when Pastor Chuck, when he was doing Monday night studies, and he'd let people come up afterwards and ask questions. And a guy came up to Pastor Chuck, and he goes, and we had, at Calvary, when a church that big attracts a lot of nuts. I mean, you think, you know, we have a handful of kooks, but, you know, there it was, sometimes it seemed like it was half full of nuts. And it was one of these guys, and he comes up in front of a whole lot of people, and he goes, Pastor Chuck, I want you to answer right now. Tonight, were you in the flesh or were you in the spirit? And Chuck called him by name, and he said, I was in the spirit. Chuck, tell the truth. Were you in the flesh or were you in the spirit? He goes, I was in the spirit. And Chuck kind of looked at me like, don't hit him. I got this, <laughs> I got this one, you know. And the guy said it again, and, and Chuck said, who will bring a charge against God's elect? And the guy didn't know what to say. And he said, who's the accuser of the brethren? And the guy just turned around and walked off. I never saw the guy again. And I'm sure he thought, in his sick mind, he felt like he knew some secret about Chuck that was, you know, Chuck was really not in the spirit that night or whatever. But I'll never forget the power of that simple statement. And I remember it often whenever I feel condemnation. There isn't for those who are in Christ Jesus. There just isn't. Jesus told that to Nicodemus in John 3. You know, if you don't believe in Jesus, you're already condemned. But he said, I don't condemn anybody. I didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but I came to save the world. Condemnation is off the table when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. So who is he who condemns? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect when God justifies? He's the one who makes us righteous. Christ died and has risen. He's at the right hand of God making intercession for us. We're covered. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation... Paul had plenty of that, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, as it is written, quoting from the Psalms, for your sake we are killed all day long, we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. He said, so how much of this stuff will ultimately separate us from the love of Christ? I mean, you know the answer, but think about it a little bit. When do we so often question the love of Christ? What causes, uh, because there's nothing that can affect his love for us. But if we question his love for us, then the fact that he loves us, you know, practically speaking, it's not doing us a lot of good. In reality, we're still justified, we're still forgiven, we're still going to heaven. He still loves us just as much. But he wants us to know his love, and so often this life and the pain that it sometimes involves causes us to question God's love because we tend to think that love is equated with ease and comfort and blessing. And the truth is, and, and I think many of you have discovered this already, you don't like it, I don't either, but the truth is, the greatest times of building spiritual maturity in me, the greatest times of sensing his presence, the greatest times of just his blessing and our closeness to him are so often times when you're really hurt. 
and things happen and it just hurts. And out of that comes this glorious grace of God that apart from pain, we would rarely, if ever, even be aware of. And, and so, again, Paul is going, does this stuff knock out the love of Christ? Tribulation? Distress? You're in trouble or you're distressed. Distress basically means you're in a spot and you don't know what to do. That doesn't mean God doesn't love you. God's love doesn't mean that you become a genius and have all the answers. Persecution, it's not about a vote. How many people like you, how many people don't like you, therefore he loves you based on your own popularity. Everyone else can be persecuting you and he loves you. Famine, (laughs) you know, a lot of times we equate eating with being loved. (laughs) We have comfort foods. We even talk about the fact that we love certain foods. But the truth is, and you know, the Bible talks about fasting for a reason. Because sometimes when you deprive yourself of food, you'll discover spiritual reality that you wouldn't have otherwise. I believe that our excess amounts of food and our, so our obsession with food in, in so many ways is robbing us from from really experiencing everything that God has for us. But Paul says, believe me, if you miss a meal, that's not going to separate you from Christ. In fact, like persecution and these other things, it might even draw you closer to him. Nakedness, when you don't have clothes. You know, not having a lot of clothes might be a drag. But it's mostly a drag for other people who are around you. It doesn't affect your life that much. But having a bunch of clothes, I mean, that can really be a drag, too. You have to decide what goes with what and what am I going to wear. If you just wear jeans and T-shirts, life is so simple. (laughs) Everything I have matches with everything else I have. (laughs) Peril, danger, sword. Hey, it's as old as the Psalms. You know what? When God is leading us for his sake, a lot of people are going to want to kill us. But that doesn't mean he doesn't love us. A lot of times it confirms that he does. But in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. A lot of times we feel like losers, and we love to feel like winners. But the whole winner-loser thing doesn't really describe it. The, when you look at wins and losses, it's always a, a zero-sum game. Someone wins means somebody else loses. In fact, if one person wins, it usually means a whole lot of people have to lose. Kind of like a pyramid scheme, you know? <laughs> a few people get to win, and then a whole bunch of people are going to lose so that they can win. Life tends to be that way sometimes. And, you know, for there to be one prominent person, they're put on the backs of a whole bunch of other people. So it's not just that God makes us winners. He makes us more than conquerors. It's completely out of the realm, out of the competitive thing. It has nothing to do with being compared with others because, you know, in this world, we can pretend like everyone is a winner and give everyone trophies like they do in youth sports nowadays and don't keep score and all that kind of stuff. But to be in a whole different realm, to be in a whole different ball game, a whole different sphere spiritually is way better than just us trying to congratulate ourselves and make everyone else feel good. It's about with what he has done for us, and it's already accomplished, and we cannot lose. When an accusation comes in, it just reminds Jesus of us so that he defends us once again. 
and says, once again, I died for that person. And when we fail, it draws us closer to the Lord because of our dependence on Him. And we're just so, again, impressed with His love for us. And so we're more than conquerors. We aren't going through something and then, oh, we made it. We won. We won before it even started. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And then finally, this incredible benediction to this section. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not death, but some people are more afraid of life than they are of death. Life can't do it either. <laughs> Angels, demons, principalities and powers, whatever that means, the higher levels of angelic and demonic beings, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. None of that stuff. We shouldn't live our lives obsessed with or worried about what we have to lose. We shouldn't be counting, keeping score all the time and checking the odds and being afraid, ooh, you know, what if this is of the devil or what is... What if that is a, you know, my angel doesn't show up at the right time? Or what, you know, no. You name it, nothing that's created can separate us from God's love that's in Christ Jesus. Now you go, wow, that's pretty secure. So inevitably the question comes up, then once you become a Christian, is it impossible to then become a non-Christian? And I wouldn't say dogmatically that it is necessarily, but let me explain to you why. I, I, I'm, I'm cautious here because the scriptures warn us of, you know, that, to make sure that we don't fall from his grace, that we don't leave him, that we, you know, Jesus said, abide in me. And so I don't want to give people a false assurance that, that God doesn't give them. Um, now, one thing I can say is no created thing, nothing that life or death or angels or principalities or powers, none of that can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. So nothing else can do it. But the question is, can you do it yourself? I mean, what if you just decide you don't want to be saved? What if you decide you don't want to be a Christian? What if you deliberately apostatize I'm not talking about you commit some sin and you feel really bad about it and you think you lost your salvation. There's no way. I mean, for one thing, if you care whether you're saved or not, you're saved. It's only the Holy Spirit inside you that can even give you that desire. So I don't care what you did this week. I can tell you that nothing that you did separated you from the love of Christ. There isn't any sin that you could conceive of or commit that would be so bad that Jesus didn't die for it. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. However, I don't think that you know, um, God's going to drag anyone into heaven you know, gagged and bound because they decided they didn't want to be saved. And he goes, sorry, man, I saw you at the Harvest Crusade in 1984. You went forward. You're stuck now, baby. You're in. You're mine. No, I don't think that. I mean, I don't know why anyone would ever change their mind. And this is a gray area theologically. Um, because if you, and I, I'm careful not to say you can definitely lose your salvation or to say you definitely can't. A part of it, I think, is semantics. Because here's the thing. What is salvation? Most of us would say, well, salvation is you get eternal life. What is eternal life? can start at a given point, but it's going to go on forever. So if you lose eternal life, it's kind of like having a lifetime warranty expire. Well, I guess it wasn't a lifetime warranty if it expired. The only way a lifetime warranty expires is 
if the company goes out of business, and God's not going out of business. So if someone, and yet, there are people that I know who had every indication of having a sincere faith in Jesus Christ, serving him, you know, showing use of the gifts, um, seemed to love him as much as anybody else that I knew, and now they don't believe. How do I explain that? I mean, I, I have to go, whatever they had, I'd be hesitant to call it eternal life, because whoops. Now, I can understand someone who goes through some big disappointment in life, and for a while, they're like, that's it, I don't want anything to do with God. Um, that kind of backsliding, I think, happens to a lot of people who just get discouraged. But, and, you know, some people are prone to that because the devil knows that they are and he just says the right thing to them and they believe it for a while. But, but somebody who legitimately turns away from God for the rest of their life, you can call it whatever you want. First um, John chapter 2 talks about people who went out from among us because they weren't really of us. And they left us in order to show that they weren't really of us. In other words, if somebody leaves, it kind of shows they weren't really there completely. It's kind of like losing a friend. If you have a friend who dumps you, you didn't lose a friend. You just found out that they weren't the friend that you thought they were. Right? I mean, if someone has unconditional love for you and then they don't, did they really have unconditional love for you? And so any, any way that you cut it, I don't know how to describe that, but I don't want to go through a section on security and cause someone to feel like, you know, it doesn't matter, you're always once saved, always saved. Yeah, I get that, and that may be an accurate statement or not. But I also don't want somebody to think that just because they prayed a prayer and then they just go on and live for themselves for the rest of their lives, there's no sign of any change, no sign of fruit of the Spirit or anything else, then you know, there's a good chance that somebody thinks they were saved for a while, but they really weren't. So there can be that going on. Um, I don't think that God forces anyone, but let's face it. We're all here. We are here because we want to be in a relationship with God. If you stop caring and you just don't even want God, you don't want anything to do with Him, that's something to worry about, but you probably won't be worrying about it at that point. You won't be here on Wednesday nights. We won't see you to even tell you that. If you care, <laughs> that's a sign of faith. That faith is all it takes to be saved. How much faith? A grain of a mustard seed ought to do. So that's our security. That's my security. I, you know, I don't have any intention or plan of trying to get out of it just to see if I can get out of it. I feel totally secure. And when I read <laughs> that I am persuaded that death, life, angels, principalities, powers, things present, things to come, height, depth, or any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I believe that. I rejoice in that. And that seems to cover just about everything. <laughs> so I feel safe. I don't ever worry about God stopping loving me. I don't ever worry about me doing something it would be so bad that then he wouldn't love me anymore. Because he already says, nope, can't happen. The stupidest thing you could ever imagine or think of, I've already thought of it. I've already died for it. You're covered. Quit living your life in fear. Quit living your life in condemnation. Stop listening to the lies of the father of lies as he constantly wants to convince us that God's love isn't enough for us. It is. And anyone who says otherwise is lying just from the pit of hell. We ought to feel totally secure in his love. Not because of us, because of him. And it's a slap in the face to him whenever we 
do otherwise. Now, if this is true, you go, boy, it feels really good to have that kind of love. I wonder why we're not always secure in that love. And I would suggest to you a part of the reason, obviously a part of it is that Satan's lying to us constantly and he's really good at it, um, good at fooling people. But there's something else that we need to face as children of God. And that is we aren't very good at loving like this. We aren't very good at showing the love of God for others. We don't do unconditional love very well. Almost always our love for others is conditional. And you realize it. I can sit here and tell you that there isn't anything you can do that's going to separate you from the love of Christ. But I can't tell you, frankly, there isn't anything you can do that won't separate you from my love. My love isn't perfect. I mean, God's worked with me in a lot of ways, and sometimes I've had a great compassion for people who do some pretty disgusting things, and there are some people in the body of Christ who are better at that than others, some of us who are worse at it than others. But let's not forget, we love because he first loved us, John said. And so this kind of love ought to cause us to go, man, that's great. I want to have that kind of love. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it's like, well, I'm glad God loves you because I sure don't. (laughs) (laughs) But being loved like this when you really know it, it can't help but affect you. Because every time you fail, every time you sin, every time you're confronted with, with your own disgusting flesh, it ought to be first a reminder, this is so cool, God loves me, even despite what I've done. And I, and I praise him for his unconditional love. But then it ought to also cause me to be a bit more gracious and loving and tolerant of people who aren't so loving to me. Remember Jesus told the parable about the guy who was forgiven millions of dollars of debt and then went and nailed a guy who owed him a few bucks and had him thrown in prison until he could pay every penny that he owed. And the master who had forgiven him of so much said, I got to deal with you on this. This is a problem. Jesus said, the one who has been forgiven of much loves much. And so it's really important that we personalize this and receive it and gladly receive it. And then begin to extend it. Because not only is that consistent with what we've been forgiven, and Jesus, even in the Lord's Prayer, when he was teaching them how to pray, interrupted himself when he said, forgive us our trespasses, and he stopped and he goes, because if we don't forgive others their trespasses, our Heavenly Father won't forgive us of our trespasses. That scares me. It really does. I look at it and go, whew. I'm glad I have Romans 8. (laughs) But, you know, that ought to work that way. But also, when you're forgiven, it has a powerful and transforming effect on you. The kindness of God brings us to repentance. And so the more that we can show this kind of love within the body of Christ, not only are we acting consistently with what he has done for us, but we are teaching each other about his love. Sometimes I, because of my sin and rebellion, feel so far from God that until a person punches their way through that, the door isn't open for his love to flow freely to me. Most of us have experienced God's love through others, one way or another at one time or another. Others are the channel and the vehicle for his love. See why it's so important for us to show that love and for us to be aware of that love? The truth is, most of us are living a lie. Most of us are still living under the law. Because most of us, because of God's grace, we are better than we used to be. And because there's no shortage of 
of sinners in the world, we can feel pretty decent about ourselves when we grade on the curve. We are better than a lot of the people that we know and better than so many of the people we don't know. And therefore, we can do okay as legalists. We're living okay. We're feeling close to God because we think we deserve being close to God. But what happens? There's division because we have a hard time dealing with other people because if they get too close to us, they see that we aren't as good as we pretend. And then when we're dealing with other people, they do things that irritate us and it brings out the worst in us. And, and since love is only functions corporately, you know, in a group, then, man, it's, it's tough to be a legalist if you let people get close to you. To be a good legalist, you also need to be a good actor. So what happens, the church becomes a place where everybody's acting and everybody's kind of like feeling okay about each other because, you know, you're a pretty good actor, I'm a pretty good actor, and fortunately we always have a few of those people in the church who are just always falling apart, makes us feel good. We can all kind of rally around them and minister to them. You know, they're kind of the designated whipping boy of the church. And, and then the rest of us on the curve feel like we're doing pretty good. But the reality of the gospel is that there is none that doeth good. No, not one. Put that out. Now recognize he has given us everything. Everything works together for good. He loves us completely and unconditionally. Nothing will separate us from that love. It isn't about what we do. And when I receive that and really understand it, and often the only times we do really understand it is when we fail miserably and there's nothing left, somebody yanks down the curtain on our little show, and now it's like, oh boy. Then I can receive that love for real. And that's glorious. And then I can extend that love, and the church starts to feel more like a place that really functions that way, where you don't have to play games or pretend. Where because of the gospel, we don't have to have secrets, things don't have to hide, we don't, we don't have to fake anything. It's, the gospel is real. As long as there are legalists around, though, there will be condemnation. And you're going to feel that glare of, I don't approve of you because of what you've done. But that doesn't matter. That's not coming from God. Jesus is defending you and defending me, and nothing can separate us from his love. I can get in the way of that love again. He doesn't force me, and I can get in the way of other people feeling the love. If I'm not careful, I can get all fired up every week and get up here and preach studies that make everyone feel horrible. And I can actually go, boy, praise God, I could tell the Spirit was really moving. You should have seen the people crying as they left. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. <laughs> Separating people from the love of Christ. <laughs> Me feeling better as a result of it. I mean, it, it feels good to hit someone sometimes, you know, and especially when they deserve it. And God knows we're all worthy targets. And in fact, sometimes if I get a little too carried away and make people feel bad, they're lined up at the door to tell me how great the message was. <laughs> and it's like, Dave, that was the most powerful message ever. I feel like, you know what? And I'm like, huh, okay. <laughs> Praise the Lord. I wasn't exactly what I was shooting for. <laughs> No, we can get in the way of his love, but nothing can separate us from his love. Nothing should ever cause us to substitute anything else for the unconditional love of the grace of God that comes to us by putting our faith in Jesus Christ. When you have that, you don't need anything else. When you have that, you are covered. It's taken care of. It's like somebody's already picked up the tab. And then you, you know how when you go out with a bunch of people and somebody picks up the tab and you're like, 
was really low on money, so I'm glad they did that, but um, can you bring back the menu? Maybe I'll get dessert. (laughs) That's the way God wants us to be with him. He's like, no, no, get a, have a Coke, you know, have some dessert. I've got you covered. It's it's my tab. I've, I've paid for all of that. I've paid for everything you could ever want. I will give you anything. I won't hold back anything from you. If there's anything that you want that you don't have, it's because I have a real good reason for it. Because I've already shown how much I love you. I've proven that and paid for it. We ought to feel rich and blessed and free and we need to stop feeling like, because life is tough, I must have messed up somewhere. No. Even the toughness in life is sent our way so that we can then appreciate God's love that much more, can bask in it. And again, how close are we to Jesus as he intercedes for us? He's going to bat for us. You know, Nowadays, there aren't a lot of people who will stick up for you. Our society is sort of every man for himself. But every once in a while, someone will be against you and somebody will stand up against the flow and stick up for you. It's a really good feeling to just know that God is defending you, to have that kind of safety net And to know that everything that happens turns out to be good. This chapter, and in particular these verses, verses 31 through 39, are just a beautiful picture of what we have in in Jesus. And these are verses that if you... I would suggest at least taking the key phrases and commit them to memory. Jot them down on some cards and keep them with you. For those times when you feel condemned, when you feel attacked, when you feel persecuted, when you feel distressed, to go back and to go, no problem. We're covered. Just glorious truth. Romans chapter 9 begins. I'm hesitant whether I should even get into it because we're running out of time. But Romans 9, 10, and 11 deal with the question of Israel. Something that's never far from Paul's heart. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, but Paul was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Jew. He loved the Jews. For some reason, God didn't allow him to have a a message that was directed primarily to Jews. Paul would have loved that. He really tried on a lot of occasions. In fact, I believe that the most powerful testimony to the Jews, the book of Hebrews, was written by Paul, and he deliberately left it anonymous because he knew the Jews just couldn't stand him. And he thought they're probably going to listen to it and go, oh, that's Paul, that turncoat. But Paul had a had an amazing love for the Jewish people. And by the way, I think we should too. Um, And so as we go into these next three chapters, we will see the church didn't take the place of Israel. God didn't break his promise to the Jews. God still has a plan for Jewish people. Now we got in on it. There's not going to be anyone who's ever saved for any other reason other than putting their faith in Jesus Christ. So You don't get saved just by having Jewish blood in you. Paul makes that really clear. Um, But God has a plan, and he's not going to go back on his word. And so chapters 9, 10, and 11 are going to go into that and demonstrate it. And I think just to start it in chapter 9, and we'll cover this again next week, but just listen to this, and it'll get you excited about this section. I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. What a strong statement of what I am saying right now. I'm not messing with you. I'm not exaggerating. 
I am certain, I'm telling you, this is, I am as sure of this as I am of anything that I could ever say to you, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brother and my countrymen according to the flesh. <laughs> Gosh, I can't imagine. People who were persecuting him, people who were rejecting the message that he preached, people who were discounting everything that Paul was standing for. And Paul says, I'm not kidding you. I would go to hell in a second if these people could get saved. Reminds me of Moses when he asked God to kill him and save the children of Israel. But that's so convicting. And I, and I wonder, I mean, we're covered, we're secure, we are blessed by God so much. But how many people do you know that you would not only give your life to see them saved, but you would give your eternity to see them saved? I can't even describe what that means. I can't do it justice. I, it's just stunning beyond belief to me. But this is coming from someone who knew the love of Christ so deeply, so profoundly, that he showed that kind of love. And I, I mean, the Bible talks about, you know, there are people who will die for a good person. But how many people will die for a bad person? How many people would be willing to be dead for eternity in order to see people go to heaven. You wonder why Paul was so effective spreading the gospel? You wonder why God used this little guy so much? It starts with that heart. I mean, sometimes we're not sure we're willing to give a hundred bucks to get somebody saved. We question whether it's worth sending missionaries around the world to share the gospel when, you know, guy, it's so expensive, and I mean, come on, can't we just go print up some pamphlets and drop them from an airplane? Do we really need to put people on the ground over there? Do they, you know, and we wrestle with, oh, should I, should I give up my two weeks vacation to go on a missions trip? Vacation? Paul's talking about his salvation. And we're like, Oh, yeah, they're doing that Cinco de Mayo outreach. Um, yeah, I might come by for a while. Uh, I hear they're doing tacos. You know, and, and we're like, I don't know if we should do this because, you know, start letting those people hang around here. They're going to vandalize. It's like, what is wrong with our values? <laughs> we're so messed up. So there, I beat you up. You feel really bad. <laughs> But you know what? I have news for you. As disgusting as we are, nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. He doesn't feel any different about you than he would if you had the heart of Paul. If you devoted your whole life to spreading the gospel, he couldn't love you more than he does right now. If you're lazy and do nothing, and won't give 10 minutes of your time to share the gospel with somebody, he loves you just as much. <sighs> Amazing stuff. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for your love for us. We sure don't deserve it. But every time we witness it, every time we see your love in action, I mean, I see Paul's description of it and I'm just amazed but then I back up and I, I see how much you love us despite who we are and the guarantees that you give us and the grace that you provide and the assurance that comes from a God who loves us so much that Jesus would die for us and then stick up for us 
constantly under a constant assault of accusations by the enemy and, and say there is no condemnation for you. I've got you covered. Your love is amazing. You're amazing. And God help us to never be motivated by manipulation and guilt and feeling like we have to do something to pay back something. Help us to just be so blessed by who you are and what you've done that we live our lives in freedom and security and knowing your love in a powerful way. I pray that you would bind the enemy from lying to any of us Anyone who's here that's maybe been getting knocked around and beat up, I, I just pray that you would just cause these verses to be emblazoned in their heart. The truth of this, and to know that if Romans 8 is a lie, then it's all a lie. We don't have anything to worry about. But if Romans 8 is the truth, we're covered. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.